the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we are making waves in the oil and gas industry. Today, we're going to be talking to Chad Furman with Revolution Consulting and Engineering. We're going to learn about the application of OSVs in an emergency response environment. So, Lots to talk about, really interesting material to go through, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Chad, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you very much, Andy. I'm excited to be here and happy to have a platform to talk about this. Yeah, no, this is good. I know, and I apologize. It's been a long road for us to connect, you know, COVID stuff all aside. It's just been a hit and miss here and there and everything, but very happy we are getting to do this and have this conversation, and I think the audience is going to enjoy the material, so... Thank you again. Chad, where are we talking today? Of course, we're doing this remotely. Where are you at in the world? At the moment, I am home in uh, the beautiful state of Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Okay. All right. That is not a big offshore industry capital, is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. You yeah. found out my secret, Andy. <laughs> no, no, it's it's not. And it's a long, sorted story about how I've I've had to fight for... 20 years to stay here during my work in the industry. But I will say that, you know, we've got over a thousand miles of coastline on the Great Lakes. We are indeed a maritime state, but no, you're correct. We are not in the offshore industry by any stretch. Yeah, that's good though. I'm glad you've kept boundaries and stayed where you want to live. I can't say the same. I've moved like six times for my company in 10 years. So kudos to you for that one. <laughs> and I look forward to hearing more. But before we get too far into it, of course, I want to thank my sponsor and the show sponsor, Tidewater. Tidewater has been with us from the beginning. They bring you this content. They bring this material to the general public, but also their, hopefully their employees and customers and just all the wonderful people that they interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. So, of course, Tidewater owns and operates the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry with over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide. If you're interested in support for your maritime operations, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. All right, Chad, we started to touch on it. We started to tiptoe around my opening question. So let's dive into that. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background that got you to where you are today. Well, it pains me a little bit to say how long I've been doing this, but I've been in the industry now for 22 years, give or take. I'm a 1998 graduate of the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy from Kings Point. I do have the distinct pleasure of having graduated twice, also in 2009 with my master's in marine engineering degree. In between there, though, I did sail as an engineer for 10 years and eventually as a chief engineer internationally on subsea construction, dive support, ROV-type vessels. And after that, in 2008, I shifted shoreside and have done consulting work since that time, working for various organizations in different roles as group manager, but ultimately still ending up offshore on vessels, assisting 
the vessel owners and operators make sure that their operations are are run efficiently and safely. Okay, awesome. And you've done that all by living in Wisconsin. And that's correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The credit card bills have been up there sometimes, but it's a battle worth fighting. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. That is real good. So, where do you see yourself most often leaving leaving shore? Are you off most of the time off the East Coast or Gulf Coast? Or well, it's certainly a global industry. I will say that for the most part, I am down in the Gulf of Mexico region here in the United States mainly out of New Orleans or Houston. I did have some part-time residences in, in both cities for a little while. So that is definitely the bulk of my work, but it's not infrequent that I'll be in the UK. Well, pre-COVID, of course, in the UK or in Europe or even in the Far East if necessary. So it's it sees me traveling all over the world, but again, it's primarily in the Gulf Coast of the US here. Yeah, that dang old COVID messing everything up for all of us. So. <laughs> All right. So you've got a wealth of knowledge in the industry. You have been around the block, if you will. So, yeah, I mean, you know what's going on. And now this topic is, it's not the normal topic. I'll just say, typically the guests that are coming on the show or they're supporting their company, right? Their company. And I think you've got connections to this too, but it's some new service. It's some new project. It's some something new. But what we're talking about today is, is something a little different. And So we're talking about the use of offshore support vessels in emergency response efforts, right? How did you get into that? How is that a passion project for you? This goes back originally, so bear with me just a moment here, but it goes back initially to about 2016 or so. And it started when I I saw a letter from two U.S. representatives, Crowley and, and Beneshek, and I apologize, I forget their first names now, but... I do remember that the representatives from New York and Michigan, I believe, respectively. But anyways, I came across a letter of theirs pushing for funding for new training vessels for the state maritime academies, which eventually became known as the, the National Security Multi-Mission Vessel. I think that there are, at the moment, two of them that are contracted, perhaps even three that are, that are already in the works with the idea being that there will eventually be four or five, six of these vessels across the U.S. And one of the objectives of of these particular training vessels is to serve as response resources during times of national emergency. And now with this topic in and of itself, there's a lot of, of background to it that could easily take up its own podcast. So I'll spare you some of the details and give you the short version here. But at the time, again, we're talking 2016, the offshore sector was, you know, we were already two years into a down market. We were seeing hundreds of U.S. flag Jones Act qualified OSVs that were being laid up and taken out of service. So I started researching how these existing resources, laid up resources that were available within the U.S. offshore market could serve other purposes in the national interest, including training, but of course, again, highlighting the emergency response capabilities of it. You know, knowing that these smaller vessels in reality make up an overwhelming majority of the Jones Act U.S. flag fleet. Okay. So you found an opportunity. So did it start as an overall cost-saving initiative? Like, why are we spending money to build brand new vessels when we have ships sitting in yards and laid up currently? Exactly. And Going back to the makeup of the Jones Act fleet of the U.S., it's, you know, we have approximately 81, I think at last count, U.S. flag deep water vessels 
as opposed to literally thousands of offshore and inland smaller vessels. So what I was looking at is, okay, so for trading purposes and for response purposes, we've got a much larger fleet of these smaller assets that in actuality reflect the makeup of the U.S. merchant marine much more accurately than would the national security multi-mission vessels that are being proposed by the representatives that I mentioned earlier. Okay. So you see these two representatives reaching out for funding to build these new vessels, and that sparks the interest of how else could that be done? How else could we do that without you know, spending new money or, or you know, do it with less money? And puts you on this path to start researching it. And so were you kind of the, the sole lone, lone guy out there beating this drum to bring people's attention to this? Or, or were there any other industry organizations and companies that kind of saw that and, and noticed the possibilities and, and the opportunity that was kind of sitting there in front of them? I'm not going to take credit for something that I'm sure other people were, were interested in as well. But for me, it started off as kind of a pet project you know, trying to determine that you know, where these, these resources could be used and employ U.S. mariners and the whole nine yards. But that said, that the continued as a side project for a year, a year and a half or so, but it evolved into a collaboration from a personal project into an industry-wide effort. In 2018, there was an initiative from the Offshore Marine Service Association, OMSA, which turned into a task statement for the National Offshore Safety Advisory Committee, NOSAC. And I've been a member of NOSAC for going on six years now. And as a member of the committee, when that task statement came up, I volunteered to to co-chair the effort because it had been, it was a bit of a synchronicity, if you will, because it's something that was a passion of mine for a while. And when this opportunity came up, I jumped at it and volunteered to co-chair the effort which eventually resulted in recommendations surrounding a national response framework using these resources. But it was also during this time that, and the subcommittee itself was made up of some of the major players in the offshore industry, including the you know your sponsor Tidewater, but there are many others, Seacor, Hornbeck Offshore Services, Edison Schwest Offshore, not to mention a number of service providers as well. So it ended up being a truly comprehensive industry effort. Awesome. Okay. So this is a clear opportunity and a clear area of improvement. If you've got multiple companies and the support of different organizations in the industry. So certainly a good project to be involved with. And it sounds like great improvements to be had. So I mean, let's kind of step back a little bit. I mean, we see kind of how we got here, but we're kind of coming at it primarily from the emergency response efforts and their application, the OSV's application there. Now, the U.S. fleet has emergency response vessels in it today, right? Like, I know there's the two, I don't know the correct name, but I know it's Mercy and Comfort, right? The two medical ships that we recently heard quite a bit about when they were deployed for COVID. So what's that fleet built of today? What kind of vessels are in there currently? Well, there's no specific vessels that are designated as emergency response. But the, you know, I may get some pushback on that later on. But you know, there's the Mercy, like you said, the hospital ships that that are indeed, you know, very specifically designated and designed to be response vessels for 
natural disasters, emergencies, what you know, what, whatever. And there's also U.S. Navy efforts to provide vessels that can respond to crises as necessary, depending on location. The issue, and there's actually reports on this out there in the uh, online, and I can't name the specific one on my mind right now, but there are reports out there that talk about what can the Navy do to respond to these crises better. And what they show is that, you know, they have warships and they have military sea lift command vessels, and some of them can definitely respond to these crises, but what is their utility in responding to them? A warship is not necessarily going to have a whole lot of utility in responding to a natural disaster. They may have some facilities that are, you know, hospitals and things like that on board that can assist, but they aren't really designated as response vessels. You do have something in the industry, such as Marine Spill Response Corporation, is one that comes to the top of my mind, and they are dedicated to reacting to oil spills. So there are ones like that, but there is nothing that's actually dedicated to disaster response, humanitarian response outside of of the hospital vessels that you mentioned. And that's one of the ideas of the training vessels, of course, for the the state maritime academies is that they would fill that, that mission. But when you talk about those, you're talking about vessels that have to respond at a distance, if you will. We saw from the call out to the recent weather events in the Gulf of Mexico last year, that vessels were brought in from New York, vessels were brought in from California in order to respond. Well, there's quite a distance to travel between those locations in order to be on site to provide the necessary services. Yeah, no, a long distance, right? And a lot of time, you know, and you compound that with an emergency effort where, I mean, every minute's going to count, you know, especially it could count directly for for human life. So let's let's look at that. So when we're talking emergency response, we're most likely looking at the lens of hurricanes and, you know, natural disasters and events like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. And now what kind of work would the OSVs be doing in those type of scenarios? Well, yeah, first, you know, it's important to note that, as you indicate, one thing I want to make sure that we're clear about today is that we're talking about specifically the U.S. fleet of OSVs. I will note that this is a a global perspective that we can certainly be uh, taking on this, but our discussion today is going to be surrounding the the U.S. fleet of vessels. So I, I do want to point that out in case we expand the discussion a little bit later. But to answer your question, it's a testament to the wide variety of existing capabilities within the U.S. fleet when I say that given the diversity of OSVs in the U.S. fleet, virtually any type of response-related work can be covered from the immediate search and rescue efforts, evacuation, more moderate-term transport of critical supplies and personnel, and of course, you know, going into the long-term recovery of an affected area, which would include, you know, the survey of ports and waterways. You know, the capabilities are virtually limitless. Clearing obstructions from waterways and from port access using heavy lift cranes on the fleet's construction and intervention vessels, serving as command communication centers using the satellite comms. We see the big domes on the top of of the larger vessels that we have out there, the larger OSVs, and those can certainly be used for global communication, response personnel, transport and accommodation, even power generation, 
power supply to shoreside facilities, to hospitals and to emergency facilities like that. And, you know, even utilizing the larger vessels with Helidex as landing platforms for critical personnel. A lot of times during these disasters, airports will be wiped out. And that may be one of the first things that construction crews begin working on to restore. But in the meantime, you can have an OSV with a shallow draft that might come into a port and be able to provide a helicopter landing pad for personnel to come and go as necessary. The vessels that make up the OSV fleet are a lot more versatile than the single mission tankers or container vessels, which are big vessels that carry a lot of supplies, and that's fantastic. But in the meantime, these OSVs have a lot of much smaller draft and are able to get into more restricted waterways, especially those that may be obstructed with debris following a storm or what have you. And in general, they offer a lot more flexibility in, in acting on their own or as a complement to dedicated response vessels like the hospital vessels and the military sealift vessels that we were, talked about before. Again, maybe a little bit later, we can touch on, on the, the topic of applying this, this philosophy on a global scale, which kind of expands these capabilities even further. But, you know, talking about the OSV fleet for the U.S., you know, there's almost no limit to what these vessels can possibly provide in those situations. Yeah, no, that list is much longer than than I had expected or thought, and, and so that, and that's fantastic. It's super interesting to hear about all those capabilities kind of just ready and able and, and you know available if we get some things in place. And I think that's you know ultimately where we're going with this and the discussion we're going to have is is what needs to change to help that. So have U.S. companies used their commercial OSVs for emergency response in the past? Absolutely. Hurricane Rita in Puerto Rico is, is probably the most recent, the best example of the use. And, and granted, you know, the Puerto Rico is a territory of the U.S., not a U.S. state. Well, it stands out as a good example of what U.S. vessels can do, but also about some of the impediments to them acting on those capabilities. The in the response to Hurricane Rita in Puerto Rico, there are several U.S. flag vessels, U.S. OSVs, that responded to requests from FEMA and other agencies, as well as service inquiries from private parties, private companies in Puerto Rico. In fact, that's that same year, just as, a, as an example closer to home, here on the mainland, if you will, Hornbeck Offshore Services had two of their flotel vessels available in Baton Rouge to provide support for individuals displaced as a result of flooding in the in the Gulf Coast areas in the, I think it was like the September, October timeframe during that year. So companies have commercial OSVs that are capable of responding and they're, they absolutely have used them in the past and, and willing to do so in the future. Okay. I think I know what it is, but just so I'm not wrong here. Did you say Flotel? Right. Yeah. Flotel. So the mission of these vessels is to house primarily industry personnel for longer term. So if you've got a decommissioning project offshore, for instance, and you need to house a large number of personnel, a large number of offshore workers, then these particular assets are built to house up to probably 200 people in accommodations that are specifically built for that purpose. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. I I figured it was a floating hotel, but that name was just too perfect. I I had to call that out there. That's that's great. I want to spend the night on a floatel. I haven't haven't done that before. (laughs) They're nice. They're very nice. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so on 
the last emergency, and I think you started, you just touched on some of this. We've had these different natural disasters, of course. And as you were going through some of the capabilities of the OSV fleet, I was thinking about the hurricane that just came through the Gulf just about a week ago. We had Hurricane Laura come through, and I know all different parts of Lake Charles and the surrounding area are still dealing with that and will be for some time. And, you know, I'm in the oil and gas world, of course. And, you know, they can't start their refineries back up because they can't get barges in and out of, you know, there's vessels and debris in the way. And I mean, just so many parts of this that you don't always think about. So very interesting stuff. But during these last, you know, large emergencies, where did this fleet of vessels come from? Obviously, we've done the work. So how did we do that? In the response to Hurricane Rita in Puerto Rico specifically, there were U.S. vessels available and ready to respond. Unfortunately, what occurred was there's a, I think, a common misconception or, or maybe just a lack of understanding of the general U.S. public on our industry in general, but also what the industry is capable of. So during that time, you may have seen in, in some of the industry magazines, industry newsletters and stuff that there was the perception that the U.S. capabilities were not sufficient to respond to the crisis. And as a result, what ended up happening was there were a total of 10 waivers granted to foreign flag vessels that then came in and provided some of the emergency gear and some of the critical supplies that were necessary for Puerto Rico to start the recovery process. So, you know, this was something that, that started to kind of turbocharge my my efforts here was specifically this response to Puerto Rico because we had the capability, we had the vessels ready, we had the vessels waiting. In fact, some of them were already loaded with supplies. But then because of misunderstandings on the part of the public, because of different interpretations of legal requirements, they were not allowed into the port of Puerto Rico. So instead, these waivers for foreign vessels were provided, which allowed them to come in and provide those supplies. Okay, yeah. That's really the point I think we're you really want to touch here is some of those limitations that are out there and, and the misunderstandings that the public has, if you will. So from that side, if we've got these limitations there, do American companies have an appetite to use their vessels on this kind of work? Yeah, certainly. They have the appetite to do so, and they're certainly willing to do so. They've demonstrated that in the past. One of the things that we have to consider here is where is the, well, like so many other things in the industry, it comes down to revenue and, and cost. So if you look at, at the average OSV, you can be expecting anywhere from, say, 6000 to $10,000 per day to cover just the operating expenses for supplies, consumables, salaries, insurance, things of that nature. So if companies cannot cover that cost, then, then there's a bit of a reticence to provide those vessels for those services. Having said that, in responding to some of these disasters, you know, the requests will come from FEMA or from other U.S. government agencies to assist, in which case there is generally a stipend provided, if you will, something to assist these organizations in covering the cost for providing these vessels to respond to the disasters. So that has to be factored into this. You, know, you want to talk about willingness to do it. 
absolutely there's a willingness to do it, and they will do so sometimes at their own cost. But if we talk about more of a long-term, more of a, a dedicated response fleet, well, then that's where some of the revenue issues and the cost issues, the OPEX, if you will, comes into play. Okay, so really there's a need to change some of the regulatory items around this scenario, but there's also some discussion and some work to be had on, okay, if we do allow these U.S. flagged OSVs to go to work on these emergency funds, how are they getting paid? So that's really not super clear cut today, if I'm understanding you correctly. Correct. And that's part of the issue that we have to address here. The funds are available, but how they get provided to vessel operators to cover those costs, that's a little bit of a gray area, which I honestly can't answer right now. That's a little bit more of an area that needs to be explored and certainly discussed within the industry and between the industry and government agencies. Okay. And yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. I mean, that's kind of like, that's still down the road a little ways. We still have to be able to get these ships and these vessels to work, right? We still we still have the misconceptions out there and, and we're missing out on on even the opportunity to to help and be a part of the recovery and response effort. So we've talked about a lot of things. And I think if you listen through this whole interview so far, there's tons of little pieces and parts that we've mentioned that you've mentioned so far on how the use of U.S. flag vessels, U.S. flagged OSVs would be beneficial to U.S. companies. But maybe let's just dive into that a little bit. I mean, what are the benefits of using the U.S. fleet instead of these, you know, granting these waivers and bringing in these vessels from other countries? So, uh, well, yeah, we talked about some of the obstacles a little bit. But if we look at some of the obstacles to having a dedicated fleet for this purpose, I'll say that. But if we look at this differently, and and this is the crux of the approach that we had with, with the National Offshore Safety Advisory Committee, if we can have a large fleet of vessels that carry known capabilities to certain aspects of, of any kind of a disaster, well, suddenly now you've got a larger fleet of vessels that are active on the commercial market. They're generating revenue, they're paying for themselves, but they're also capable of responding to emergencies without the additional red tape that may come up when we talk about some of these regulations and stuff that that restrict them. So what you end up with is available resources in the U.S. flag fleet, trusted assets. They're maintained to a well-known, a high standard of safety, courtesy of, of trusted class societies, and of course, the U.S. Coast Guard. And more importantly, probably is you know the trusted personnel that are operating these assets that are trained to an equally well-known and an equally high standard, again, courtesy of, of the U.S. Coast Guard. And, and for a lot of assets, international requirements like standards for training and certification of watchkeepers, STCW. You also have immediate availability. So if you consider the number of, of resources, the number of OSVs that are in the market that are operating around, again, focusing on the U.S. here, operating around the contiguous U.S., around the U.S. territories, you've got any number of, of resources that are available right there in the immediate area. Should a disaster strike within that area, well, you can point to asset A, B, C, whatever. And again, under this framework, you will understand what the innate capabilities that these vessels have 
And if they have some of the tools, some of the capabilities necessary to respond to that particular disaster, then they can be called in. They're within the immediate area and can respond in a shorter amount of time. The pushback from that is always going to be, well, some of these regulations are put in for the consideration of safety. If you And I won't go into too many details about this, but if you have a subchapter L vessel that is responding to or will be performing an activity that may normally be considered a subchapter I activity, which is industrial activities, then, you know, there's a reason for that restriction between those two different categories. So why would you bring in this vessel to circumvent regulation to perform this activity? But one of the things that is planted into this framework is that these are temporary lifting, temporary relief from some of these, the restrictions of these regulations. So if a vessel has a capability that it can immediately respond to a disaster, then the restrictions of its particular categorization there can be lifted for a very short period of time to give that the opportunity to respond until such a period as another vessel that that may be quote unquote legally capable of responding can come onto the scene and provide that service. Okay. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And and that's not something I mean, I know they're different regulatory bodies, but I know that FMCSA and DOT are are very familiar to those kind of waivers. I mean, just looking at Hurricane Laura in the Gulf Coast just last week, I mean, we almost immediately had multiple waivers for truck drivers and hours of service and, you know, many different things where those rules and regulations are in place for safety. But for a very brief period of time, they lift those, they allow us to bring in more cargo, they allow us to keep up with emergency demand and, and ultimately add safety to the general public, even though we're lifting again, for a short period of time, we're lifting safety regulations to do so. So, you know, it's not something, it's not novel concept. I mean, this is something that's done in many industries today. So so what are those kind of regulations? And, and you've touched on some of those, but what are the regulations that we'd really need to be focused on for change to make these commercial OSVs suitable for emergency response and recovery? Well, honestly, I don't think regulations need to change per se. And that may be a little bit counterintuitive in this discussion, but I'll explain here a bit. If you speak to vessel owners and operators, the the vast majority will tell you that they understand the need for the rules and regulations that the Coast Guard, as a primary example, have in place that govern safety, especially during emergency scenarios. But what I would propose instead is that rather than changing regulations, there's more of a need to develop a better understanding of the regulations that are already applicable. Going back to the reader response again, and I mentioned this a little bit before, but the U.S. flag assets were immediately available and some of them actually attempted to respond. But although they were capable of performing the necessary tasks, some of them weren't engaged in those activities because of some of the response agencies' knowledge of legal operating requirements for the vessels. And there are others that were blocked by strict and sometimes conflicting interpretations of regulations on the part of the Coast Guard, the officer in charge of marine inspection in, in the, the local port. 
As a result of this, then the vessel owners and operators had to expend time and resources in, in seeking waivers just to respond to people in need. A lot of these waivers ended up being denied basically on the same grounds for which they're initially requested. And, and it effectively crippled a critical aspect of our national disaster response capability. So again, just to reiterate, I think it's an, a better understanding of what we already have in place rather than having to reinvent the wheel, having to change what's in place right now. Another aspect of this, which comes out in the framework again for the, the subcommittee at NOSAC is, again, and I'm going to mention this because it is important, the strictly temporary nature of the suspension of some of these regulations. If you have a mechanism in place by which the affected stakeholders, if you will, are aware of the vessels that are immediately available, that have the capabilities that are required to respond and can safely respond, then there can be a temporary relief of some of the restrictions that are imposed by these regulations, but only for the purposes of providing aid for for a limited period of time, like I mentioned earlier. Okay. That makes very good sense. I mean, I understand that. I think the listeners and the audience can as well. So, you know, we've touched on many, many points here and, and certainly sounds like, you know, a lot of work needs to be done to improve the understanding, like you just said. So, you know, you're coming on the podcast, we're presenting this material to the broad industry. Who are you kind of ideally hoping hears this and how in your eyes would the audience be able to support these efforts and and get on board with this kind of message? Uh, well, I want everybody to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> this is part of what, what excites me about this. There's an element to this. So I, I focus on OSVs because that's what I know. I'm intimately familiar with this, with these vessels, with these resources. So I know what they can do. And I'm excited by the different potential applications that they can have, particularly when it comes to supporting disaster and humanitarian response activities. But that's just one element of it. What I'm hoping is that, you know, out in the, the general listening public, if they can put up with me droning on for, you know, 30 minutes, however long I've been on here, that they kind of get an idea of, you know, hey, I'm an expert in rail transportation. If we already combine efforts with the offshore service vessels that can come into these ports that may have restricted access because of uh, debris in the waterway, what have you, then we can provide an extension to that service by being able to send critical supplies further inland, road trucking, air transport, you name it. All of these different industries, all of these, all of these different transportation sectors have this capability. And where one may be restricted because of the results of a natural disaster, another one may be able to pick it up. So the OSV side of it is just one element of it. So I hope that what we're saying here today and what we've done already can maybe go out further and other folks in other industries can pick it up and say, you know what, that's a good idea. We can do more with this and, and maybe we can shake hands with this other industry or elbow bump in this post-COVID environment, I guess, with, with this other industry <laughs> and be able to provide an extension to this. And then and then the possibilities are endless. You know, we can provide services to anybody, anywhere, and do good for humanity, really. Yeah. No, that's a great that's a great summary of everything. And I think that would resonate with anybody. And I can't help but notice the timing on this. I mean, I, my day job is in road trucking. We all 
gasoline and diesel all day, every day. And I'm, I'm over the logistics group. So we've done a little bit of what you're talking about. I mean, we had people and it's not just the general public that comes in and buys gasoline and diesel, right? We, we have to, we are fueling all the trucks that the utility trucks, the, you know, the electricians, the, the plumbers, the construction crews, the trash trucks, you know, like all the different agencies and all the different response efforts come through there. And, and then you take it and you have a, like, like say Lake Charles, that refinery gets shut down. You're not getting your gasoline and diesel right next door to where it usually comes from. Now you've got to go super far away and those have like a spider effect across the country. So now you are maybe talking to the railroad, the rail companies and bringing in fuel right. and, and doing all that stuff. So I hear your message really, really clear and I'm glad you're working to get this out to everybody. And I would, you know, the- if, if I can interject here just for a second, I would welcome folks to have a look at what the Edison, Edison Schwest group of companies did recently for response to Hurricane Laura. And it's a perfect example of what you're just talking about, which is why I'm bringing it up, that the marine side of the company and the logistics side of the company, Sea Logistics, combined their efforts to provide fuel trucks by sea and by land to areas of the Gulf Coast that were hardest hit by Laura and able to provide that fuel for power plants and, and what have you. Oh, I'll have to check that out. That's right up my alley. So no, that's a great combination of efforts and industries. So thank you. Chad, been a fantastic discussion. Lots of really interesting, thought-provoking ideas and, and material that you presented to us. Anything that we haven't touched on that you really do want to get out to the audience before we're done? Just to reiterate kind of what I said before, you know, what's kind of driving me forward in this effort is what can be made of this. You know, this is just the start of developing a much larger mechanism, something that I refer to as as chaos-ready resources. But we can start local. If we can cooperate across the industry and across agencies and organizations, make it functional here in the U.S., then we can also incorporate other industries like we just talked about. But even beyond that, not just feasible internally here in the U.S., but also across borders. You know, we can begin assisting. You know, we can set the example here in the U.S., And from this example that we set here, we can provide a bit of a framework to international organizations, even international governments, in laying a similar foundation for the use of their own existing resources and assets during times of crisis. This this is what excites me about this, is there's so much opportunity, again, to do well for humanity, you know, beyond just your bottom line stakeholders, but for the stakeholders globally. Yeah, no, and no, no argument here. I agree and with all your thoughts there and like I said, it's been really thought-provoking and very interesting. I'm, you know, thinking through scenarios on just where my day-to-day life and industry fits into this whole thing. So, Chad, again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for bringing this material out to us. Really hope that it resonates with some people and we see some great forward progress for you. Thank you very much, Andy, and yeah, I welcome anybody and everybody to reach out to me on LinkedIn is where I'm most active. Please feel free to reach out to me with any ideas you've got. We can combine our forces and and change the world for sure. Awesome. Everybody, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to help out the show, the best thing that you can do is leave us a comment or review wherever you receive this content. We are also active on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find the show and the OGGN there. 
all that helps. I welcome all feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. It helps us move forward in the right direction. So thank you again for listening and we'll catch you on the next one. Here are our events on deck. This is Savannah and here are the events on deck for September, 2020. There's the FPSO World Congress 2020, and that's on September 1st to the 4th, and also the 8th, and it's all online. The next one is Building the Future Industrial Summit on September the 16th, and that's also online. There's also the 4th Annual Blockchain and Oil and Gas Conference 2020, and that's on September the 16th to the 18th. Then there's the Engenius Symposium and Exhibition for Upstream Innovation 2020, and that's September the 22nd to the 24th. And there's also Effective Leadership Through Change and Uncertainty featuring Condoleezza Rice, and that's on September the 24th. There's also NAEP Summer 2020 from August 11th to September the 14th. And lastly, there's BP Week 2020, September 14th to 16th. That's all for September. Hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.